The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. It's wonderful to be with you this evening and to be able to worship our God together. I'm encouraged by your participation, and I hope that you have as well throughout this service, and I hope that this lesson will be edifying and help us to learn more about our, our Savior and our Lord. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, there's a familiar passage where we read of Paul instructing Timothy about some things that he would have to deal with in his ministry as an evangelist. He says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. I want to impress you with the context of such people. He says in the last days these perilous times would come. The last days, of course, we know is the last dispensation. They were actually days that the Apostle Paul and Timothy were currently living in when he wrote this epistle. They're the days that we're living in. The last time that God is seeking to lead men to Him by the revelation of the Holy Spirit and the Gospel. Nothing left is, is to come. Nothing is, is going to be sent by God. Um, the next thing is the coming of the Lord in judgment. They are the last days we live in at this time. And they have been the last days for 2,000 plus years. And we think about that and it impresses us a little more because those last days are the days of the Spirit. Perhaps we could describe it as the dispensation of salvation, of the Messianic kingdom, where all of the types and shadows of the Old Testament have been fulfilled except for the final judgment. Everything that the Jews looked forward to has been fulfilled, although some of them have rejected it. So in these glorious days, the days of the king, the days of the blessings in the Messianic kingdom, the days of, of the Beatitudes that are described in Matthew chapter 5, there are these people. And so the ideas of utopia that many people have go flying out the window. And even consider verse 5 that some of those people... And I would suggest to you, most of the people he's addressing here, if not the only group he's addressing, are people who are Christians. They claim to be godly. They would suppose that they're living godly lives, but it's just a form of godliness and they deny its power. Which means there are people that fit this description even within the Lord's church, those who profess themselves to be Christians. How is that possible? How did we get there? How were they there then? Well, the answers may vary, but I want to suggest to you that one of the greater problems and reasons for those kinds of behavior, even within the church today among some Christians, maybe some in the liberal church, or even just if we think about it in a general way, those who profess themselves to be Christians, even if they're not Christians, yet their lives do not line up with that, is because of the inundation of our society with moral relativism. And I understand, like Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, there's nothing new under the sun. There's always been some forms of moral relativism, if you will. There's always been some catalyst 
that has led to more and more ungodliness. Godliness, or ungodliness rather, has always compounded upon itself and just grown worse and worse if it's, if it's not checked. But I think one of our main challenges within the church today, especially in the society we live in, is relativism. This idea that there is no absolute truth. And so truth may be something different to you than what it is to me. And who's to say whether I'm wrong and in sin or you're right in living righteously? It's up to the individual. And that has caused a lot of problems. There's nothing new under the sun, but something interesting is said in Romans 1 and verse 30 that among those things the people involve themselves in when God gives them over to a debased mind is they are inventors of evil things. And so while you really can't invent some new evil, there's nothing new under the sun, we can invent a new way of accomplishing that same evil. Technology has been abused. It never used to be in existence in regard to the Internet, but now the Internet is some brand new thing when we look at the general scope of history, but it's accomplishing some of the same evils. It's it's an invention of of how to accomplish more evil and and more relativism and, and the wide acceptance of that, I want to suggest to you, has certainly been part of what has affected those who claim to be religious. And we need to beware of it lest it even affect those of the Lord's people. It has been adopted by the majority. And if we're not careful, it will jeopardize how we even approach Scripture. What is moral relativism? Well, relativism, as defined by the New Oxford American Dictionary, is the doctrine that knowledge, truth, and morality exist in relation to culture, society, or or historical context and are not absolute. I think that we understand the concept of of relativism. Someone may say, well, that's relative. It's, It's based on what you think as an individual. And so there's no absolute objective truth objective reality is what the relativist thinks and and while true absolute relativism i don't think anyone can be consistent enough to suggest they actually buy into that because there's always going to be something that someone is not willing to to say is relative and and we understand that objective truth is inescapable but that's why i define it as moral relativism because They may agree that north is north and south is south and west is west and east is east and you get to outer space by going up, but maybe they have a different opinion and conviction of whether or not premarital sex is okay, is righteous or unrighteous. Maybe maybe they have even a different definition of what life consists of and who is indeed a living being. And so definitely when it comes to religious thinking, which certainly addresses full front morality, there are those who want to completely reject that as if there is any objective morality. You might remember in John 18, 38, Pilate asked Jesus when he said he came to testify of the truth, what is truth? And while we don't exactly know what was going on in Pilate's mind at that time or even the inflection in his voice, we can reason that there might have been some skepticism there. And even back during that time, there was skepticism about truth. We read in 1 Corinthians about the Corinthians' tendency to follow after gospel preachers who were preaching the same thing, but they followed after them as philosophers. And there was in that Grecian age a love of philosophy, and there was a danger for Christians. And with that love of philosophy and following philosophers came this idea of a difference in perception of reality. 
One person is saying this is the truth and another person is saying this is the truth and they cannot coexist and harmonize. And so what is truth, Pilate says. Maybe that's what he was thinking. Regardless of what he was thinking, many people ask what is truth today with the skepticism that there is even such a thing as absolute truth. Yet truth by itself is absolute inherently. Truth in and of itself emphasizes an objectivity. And for an individual to suggest that there is no absolute truth, they need to face the fact that they just submitted to an idea of absolute truth. Because you might ask them then, is that true? Is that the case? And they would say, yes, absolutely. Well, then there must be some kind of absolute truth. And so it kind of fits in with what we discussed and studied this morning. Logic is real, and logic can't just be suspended We've got to use our brains that God gave us. So essentially, moral relativism is this idea that people reject this idea that there is some fundamental objectivity outside of our own experiences or opinions or minds, that something is the case, something is true, whether or not we think it is or believe that it is. And that's a fundamental component to reality that if rejected, causes a lot of problems. And it really is, on its face, something that seems ridiculous anyone would buy into. So why would anyone take that position? Well, let me suggest to you that it gives us false authority, but if we take that position, then we become the authority in our lives. We get to arbitrate what is right and wrong in our lives. We get to decide what we want to do or don't want to do. It might remind you of the time of the judges, where several times throughout that book, and it ends with it, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Truthfully, they had a king. They just rejected him. They had God as their king, but they rejected him as king. And they rejected him as king because if I reject the authority, then I become the authority and I can do whatever I want. I do what's right in my own eyes. That end of Judges commenced in 1 Samuel with a request for a king, a request for an authority, ironically, but a fallible authority. And so people want to make themselves the authority in their lives. They they don't want to submit to another. They don't want to deny themselves. And that's really what authority outside of ourselves requires. It requires self-denial. Jesus said in Mark 8 and verse 34, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus himself understood there was someone above him in regard to a position of authority, his father. And he said in Matthew 26 and verse 39, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. People take the position of relative truth because they don't want to deny themselves any of their desires. They don't want people or someone or some higher power, as they may describe God, to tell them what to do. As Paul revealed to Timothy by inspiration, They are lovers of themselves and lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So they want to refuse to submit to anything that would hold them back from what they desire. Galatians 5.17 says, The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. There's something interesting with this, though. Because there's very few people that are in their right minds who are willing and even able to just run in complete anarchy and doing whatever it is they want, taking people's lives, taking people's possessions without offending their own conscience. Every man has a conscience, whether he believes in God or not. 
if we've learned that something is right or wrong, whether we've accepted it fully or not, maybe it's just society has put it out there and we know that's the general norm. So the general norm is if you walk down the street and you take somebody's life, there's going to be consequences. People are going to think things about you. And so even if I haven't fully accepted the idea of absolute truth, but I'm a moral relativist, I'll probably stop from doing something like that, even if I have a strong urge, because of a conscience that I possess, whether it's learned correctly or not. And so because people have a conscience, they accept the idea of moral relativism to allow themselves to sleep at night. Because the conscience, while it's an impressive and important tool given to us by God, it can be misdirected. It can be mislearned and understood and misapplied. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 2, Paul talks about a time of apostasy when people will speak lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Likewise, in Ephesians 4 and verse 17, he speaks of those who no longer walk or, or, or tells them to no longer walk as the Gentiles walk and the futility of their mind. He describes why they have a futility of mind. Their understanding is dark and being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. If I tell myself long enough that something is right that really is wrong or something is wrong that really is right, then I'll start to believe it. Or at the very least, I'll become desensitized to it. So people take the position of moral relativism because if they take that position, then anything can be right or wrong based on my preferences or based on my experiences, ultimately based on my opinions. But there's the irony in that that I alluded to earlier because everyone who takes that position almost across the board, will agree that there are some things that are just obvious, that are immoral, or that are moral within themselves, which is a contradiction. You've got to take it as a whole, or you don't take it at all, yet they contradict themselves in the way they live. And this doesn't work. Moral relativism is the fundamentally worst way to approach how to live. There cannot be a true functionality and success within a person's life or a society's existence or a church's existence if they've accepted the idea of relativism because everything, whether it's considered as a very important and serious discussion or just some light and uh, um, unimportant thing on its surface, it just becomes ultimately an opinion. You know, there's things about opinions in the New Testament. God says that if something is a matter of opinion, that is, it's a matter of indifference to God, He hasn't said it's wrong to do. He hasn't said you have to do it. It's just, it's up to the individual. That's what it becomes. It's up to the individual. Don't argue about it. Don't, don't judge each other about it. Don't condemn each other about it. Romans 14.3 says, Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. But of course, that rests on the foundation of a reality of truth, of fact, of matters where God has ruled. We should do this and have to do this, or we shouldn't do this, we can't do this. But if we accept moral relativism, everything kind of falls into that category. It's just, you can do it, you don't have to do it, whatever is your preference. And so the more significant matters, even though that kind of contradicts the idea of moral relativism, become just a matter of opinion. An example of that, I think, is the pro-choice versus pro-life debate that has been going on 
for some time in this country. This is one of those things that even the moral relativists would suggest is a weighty matter. This is a big deal. This is an important matter. And really each side, whether they're right or not, each side argues from what they believe to be an inherent moral right. Pro-choicers will say that it is an inherent moral right for the woman to choose what to do with her body. And those who believe that that fetus, as they would call it, is no, no, no real fetus, it's a child within that mother's womb, has an inherent moral right to life and to protection and to health. They too think it's a big deal. But with moral relativism, there's no right answer. It's it's anybody's preference. And, and that's why those who believe in the right to choose whether to terminate a child or not think that the rest of the people should just mind their own business because it's, it's a relative matter. It's up to the individual. But adopting moral relativism takes something as fundamental as that and makes it a coin toss. It makes it opinion. Proverbs 12 and verse 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. You can be a fool. But if you've accepted moral relativism, you can sure think your way is right. Proverbs 21 and verse 2 says, Every way of man is right in his own eyes. So basically it doesn't work because there is no right or wrong, regardless of whether you'll actually use that terminology in your life. And everyone does. You can't escape it. Again, truth is inescapable. People who are moral relativists will use objectively moral words like good and evil and and, and refusing to accept that there is any such objective standard. God saw right through this into the future in Jeremiah 10.23 saying, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. You can have two good-intentioned people, wonderful, loving people, people that want the best for themselves and for others around them that can reach polar opposite conclusions if they adapt moral relativism. Proverbs 14.12 explains the danger. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. It won't work, and because people have attempted to make it work, there are dire consequences. Men are left to a debased mind. You see, God gives us free will, and He's not willing to go back on His His intention in creation to give us free will. He would be an individual who lies if he created us with free will and took that away. He gives us free will so that we can ultimately love him in truth, and he gives men over to what they want to do. In Romans 1 and verse 28, it says, Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, those Gentiles that are discussed, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They're whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. In other words, when... We're given over to a debased mind in moral relativism. There is no limit to our unrighteousness and our ungodliness and our evil ways. That word debased is the Greek word adokimos. And it means, as defined by Art and Gingrich, unqualified, worthless, and base. It's the idea of, of failing a test. Ultimately, failing a test of sanity, of, of being in your right mind and understanding there is an objectivity, at least in our context of study tonight. 
It's the idea of failing the test, and so you're worthless. And that's what the Gentiles had done. To what degree? He says in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even the women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And we've reached far beyond that in our society today. Failed the test. Completely worthless. To what degree? Well, even nature, the basic fundamental principles of existence, of life, of biology, are rejected by those who have accepted Moral relativism. A man is no longer a man. A woman is no longer a woman, but they get to decide. And, and, and the reproductive act is not for male and female together, but, but you can do that with anything and anyone. And there are people who seriously accept that and don't see any problem with it. It's because they've been given over to a debased mind. With moral relativism, anything goes. Christians have to reject any and all forms of moral relativism. And there's one area, I think, I think this can affect us in in many ways if we're not careful, just just by the way we take in information around us, and we see that and how it works with the entertainment we take in and the advertisements. We see they know what they're doing. The, The mind visualizes things and consumes things, and it actually has an effect, even if we may think it doesn't have an effect. So we need to be extremely careful. And the world, especially our nation, is filled with this postmodern thinking, this moral relativism. we got to be careful about that. But there are, are some who claim to be believers, claim to be Christians, who have bought into this, this concept of moral relativism, a type of moral relativism, which is situation ethics. And we've got to be careful because situation ethics is one of those things that if we're not really dumbing things down to their basic and fundamental principles can catch us and get us if we're not careful. Situation ethics is essentially what is right and wrong is not determined by a fixed standard. There's the relativism. But it varies with the specifics of any given situation. So something can be good in this situation, and that exact same thing put in a different context could be the bad thing to do. The situation provides for the information we need, as they would suggest, when in reality it fails. We need an objective standard. There's a man named Joseph Fletcher who lived from 1905 to 1991, and I believe it was in the 70s, he wrote a book called Situation Ethics, which took the religious world by storm, the the country by storm, and, and, and a lot of people bought into this. This man was not an atheist. He was Episcopalian. He was a priest. but He was also a professor of social ethics, and some call him the father of Christian ethics or situation, Christian situation ethics. In that book, Situation Ethics, he explains, as we shall see, Christian situation ethics has only one norm or principle or law, call it what you will, that is binding and unexceptionable, always good and right regardless of the circumstances, that rule is love. The agape of the summary commandments to love God and the neighbor. Now that sounds good on the surface, but he explains what he really means by that. Following in the same book, he says the situationist, for the situationist, there are no rules, none at all. Circumstances alter rules and principles. All laws and rules and principles and ideals and norms are only contingent, only valid, 
if they happen to serve love in any situation, and the Christian chooses what he believes to be the demands of love in the present situation. The new morality, as he calls it, situation ethics, declares that anything and everything is right or wrong according to the situation. Now, how far is this man willing to take this? In his book, and I haven't read it, but evidently in his book, he gives this example. During World War II at the Battle of the Bulge, this German woman is separated from her husband who is taken as a prisoner of war, and she's put in a Russian prison in Ukraine herself. And she comes to the knowledge of her husband's release from prison or escape. I'm not sure what it was, but he's no longer in prison. And he managed to find their children, and they're safe, and they're thriving where they are, but she's in prison. Apparently in a Russian prison, there's only two reasons that a prisoner would be released. Pregnancy or some intense and severe medical treatment that is needed. So what this Russian woman, or this German woman rather, did to be released is convinced a guard to sleep with her, impregnating her so that she could be released. And that's exactly what happened. She reunited with her family and her husband and her children received her and the child that was born out of adultery and accepted them wholly and they lived happily ever after. And he gives this real life example as proof to his code of ethics. He lauds it as a loving act that is right because it served a good purpose, a purpose of love. Now that is an extreme, but that's its logical end. Murder would even be right in its right situation. I think the most basic and common example is stealing is wrong, but is it always wrong? Because you may have a family, but no job, and you are really struggling to get by. Well, are you going to feed your family? You certainly want to, but you don't have a job, so what are you going to do? You go to the market and you steal some food. And while stealing is wrong, you're stealing the food to feed your family who depends upon you, and that makes it right. That's situation ethics. But we need to, as Christians, realize that there is an objective standard It's not just love that is a really amorphous concept that we can determine what it is in any given situation, and those situations can even contradict what love is defined as. It is God's law. And while we may not come into contact with many personally who may believe this to its greatest and logical degree, I think that there is situation ethics abundant in the world and that perhaps has even seeped into some lives of Christians today. It's all about love, some will say. And they say that not to suggest the love of the New Testament and the definitions given to that term by God, agape love, but it's all about love, meaning as long as I'm living a life with a loving disposition and all of the things that I do and think about and decide to do are from a place of love and And like Fletcher said, I determine what that is, then it's okay. So if I really love this person, it doesn't matter if we're not married. If I really love this person, it doesn't matter. God knows my heart. He knows I love Him is another way it comes across. Look, you're doing this wrong in book, chapter, and verse says why. Well, God knows my heart. He knows I love Him. That's situation ethics. I I determine when a rule applies. And it's interesting that they've turned to the New Testament, some have at least, 
to suggest an authority for situation ethics, which blows my mind because that's a contradiction in and of itself. Situation ethics essentially says the only authority is love, but love is undefined. You, you get to decide what is loving in any given situation, whatever you think serves love to the greatest degree in that situation. But here's the authority, the standard, the objective standard by which we know and understand situation ethics is legitimate. We looked at Matthew chapter 12 this morning. I want to look at the first section of that chapter and consider what they say is authority for situation ethics. In Matthew 12 and verse 1, it says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and His disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only the priests? Or have you not read that in the law, that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." They take this text and they twist its proper interpretation to conform to their idea of situation ethics. In verse 2, the Pharisees pointed out that what the disciples were doing in plucking the heads of grain and eating them as they walked through the fields on the Sabbath day was wrong. They said it was sinful. The situation ethics uh, proponent and person who suggests that's true suggests that their accusation was accurate. They were sinning. They were breaking the law and plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath. So they were breaking the law. And so this is how Jesus responds. He says, look at David. You know that David, he ate the showbread on the, uh, that was not lawful for him to eat, but only for the priests only. And, and while it wasn't lawful for him to eat it, he determined that it was okay because he was in dire straits. They were fleeing for their lives from Saul. They were, they were in need of food. And so even though it's only lawful for the priest to eat, David considered that it was okay. And after all, he's a man after God's own heart. That account is in 1 Samuel 21. The situation ethics believer will say human welfare overrides the laws of God. And then Jesus speaks up about the priest's actions and activities on the Sabbath day, that they profane the Sabbath. And and what Jesus means by that is they break the law. They're working on the Sabbath. They're profaning the Sabbath. But the situation allows for it. So Jesus approves what is unlawful based on specific circumstances. What did Jesus really mean? What was His response really? What, What sense can we make of this? This morning we talked about how error fails logically every time. And we see that later on when they accused him of casting out demons by the spirit of Beelzebub. He says from the start, wait a second, that means that I'm working for Satan, but I'm working against Satan, and that doesn't make any sense. How's this kingdom going to stand? A house divided cannot stand, it will not stand. And I think we can approach this text in the same way. It it fails within its context. It fails within the context of Jesus' life. It fails logically. We need to understand some things first. As we studied in Bible class this morning, As Matt did a good job pointing out, sin is lawlessness. 1 John 3 and verse 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And so we need to understand that at its face. Sin is not some emotional thing. Sin is not some some invisible hidden thing. Sin is identifiable. It's identifiable from the law. And, And Romans 7 says, if there is no law, there is no sin. 
Romans 5 says that, uh, rather. If there is no law, there is no sin. Where there is law, there is sin. Sin is lawlessness, anomia, being without law. You do not have authority for what you do, in other words. And Jesus condemned sin. Matthew 5 and verse 19, he said, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And notice that. He says, not only whoever breaks one of the least these commandments, he says, and teaches men so. So even if the situation ethics believer will suggest that it was the disciples who were doing it, Jesus wasn't doing it. Jesus was teaching by his words, according to them, that it was okay to break the law. And regardless of whether you'll justify it or not, the law was still broken, sin was still committed, sin is still present. Jesus, though, never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, He can sympathize with our weaknesses because He was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. If we interpret a text in such a way that acknowledges the transgression of law and Jesus' acceptance of that given a situation, He contradicts His own teaching and His own professed life in the New Testament. What was Jesus really saying? In verse 2 of Matthew chapter 12, they said, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. It's not... It's not right for us to just accept their interpretation of Sabbath law based on their words. They said what the disciples were doing was not lawful to do it on the Sabbath. Now, inherently what they were doing by itself was lawful. We know from Deuteronomy 23-25, when you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. That was Jewish law. You could pick up the leftovers. If you were hungry and you were walking through, God required the Jews to be hospitable in that regard and generous, you could take that grain. But their idea was you did it on the Sabbath. That's why it's wrong. But did doing it on the Sabbath make it unlawful? We've been studying the Gospel of John and we've noticed a few times already where Jesus healed someone on the Sabbath and the same accusation was brought against Him. He healed this person on the Sabbath, so He worked on the Sabbath, so He sinned by doing that on the Sabbath. You might remember Him healing a man at the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 7 And his follow-up to that in John chapter 7. John chapter 5, he healed him. In John chapter 7, he follows up. When they said, who's seeking to kill you? He said, I did one work and you all marvel. John 7, 21. Moses therefore gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance. Judge with righteous judgment. He's saying, you know the law and what the Sabbath law is. That it does not require you to forego the commandment to circumcise a person, as the law says, on the eighth day if it falls on the Sabbath. You know you have to do that. It's right to do that. In other words, the law of the Sabbath does not forbid all across the board, umbrella, covering it all, work. Not every action, every deed on the Sabbath is considered lawless. And Jesus gave the example of circumcision in that regard. In verse 7, Jesus actually says of Matthew 12, If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. They were guiltless. He does not suggest that the accusation was accurate, but given this certain circumstance, it's okay. He's saying they were guiltless. They did not commit lawlessness. But then he gives this example of David. And I want us to notice 
that he does say David did what was not lawful. But what he's not doing is suggesting that David doing something that was not lawful was excused by the situation. You see, he knows their hearts. Later on in the text in verse 10 and 14, it says that they thought they, or they, they were trying to accuse him. They thought how they might accuse him and they plotted against him. It was no different in this regard. They were trying to strip Jesus up just like they were trying to do when he healed on the Sabbath and various occasions. Even another one rightly uh, right after our text in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And so they are individuals with evil motives. And they're trying to abuse the situation and twist the situation to find some inconsistency in Jesus or at least raise a false narrative about Him as they would do in His crucifixion where they could ultimately put Him to death. And what Jesus is doing is showing an an inconsistency in them. You see, it's not that the Pharisees were not knowledgeable about the old law. They knew what David did. And they knew the law. They were experts in the law. They knew that that showbread was only for the priest, and David wasn't a priest. Couldn't have been a priest. He was a king or a prospective king, not of the tribe of Levi, of the tribe of Judah. He couldn't have been a priest to eat that lawfully. He did what was not lawful. Now what Jesus is pointing out is, yes, what he did was not lawful, and you know that, but you excuse him. Not a one of you would have the audacity to accuse him of doing wrong in that situation. And so you don't accuse him and condemn him for doing what you know is not lawful, and you're accusing and condemning my disciples for doing what is lawful. But not only that, if you thought that it was unlawful truly, you're showing an inconsistency. Why are you judging David by a different standard than these disciples? You're both under the same law. So either way you look at it, they're corrupt. They're not being honest. You know, they're filled with inconsistencies through Scripture. There's an example of this in the previous chapter in Matthew 11. They rejected John the Baptist and his authority, and they gave some reasons for it. And then they rejected Jesus and his authority, and they gave some reasons for it. And Jesus explained they're like little children, petulant children. And he explains in verse 18 of Matthew 11, John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. He's living too much of an austere life. He's too far out in the wilderness. Why isn't he among us? And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. He's saying you're inconsistent in the way you're approaching these two men. Jesus' lifestyle would have, at least on the surface, met the desires of the Pharisees based on their reasons for rejecting John, but that wasn't the real problem. They didn't want to accept either one of them. John's too austere. Jesus is too public. Well, you just don't want to be pleased at all. And so they're inconsistent and they're inconsistent here. And then Jesus gives another example. In verse 5, he speaks about the priest's actions on the Sabbath. He says, have you not read that in the law that the Sabbath on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath? But I want us to notice something he adds there. They're blameless. He says, David did what was not lawful. And he never says that he was blameless. But the priests profane the Sabbath and they're blameless. He's using that in regard to the view of the Pharisees' strict concept and their traditions which goes beyond the law of God of Sabbath law. You can't do anything whatsoever. If that's the case, and even plucking grain or healing a man and helping a man of taking up your bed and walking, of, of needing something like dough, like the Mishnah says, if that's sinful, then what the priests are doing are profaning the Sabbath. They're doing a ton of work. It took a lot of work and effort 
to serve God in the tabernacle and in the temple. It was no small thing. So Jesus uses their perspective. They're profaning the Sabbath, but they're blameless. And they're blameless because the Sabbath law was not all-inclusive of any work. There were some specific commands which modified the general command of the Sabbath. You have to worship God. In fact, the Sabbath day was a day of worship, and that requires the priest to do some manual labor. They had to do some work. And the law provided for that. And in verse 6 he says, but there is one greater than the temple. Here the disciples, they're doing something that is lawful. It wasn't unlawful to do that on the Sabbath. That was the Pharisaic tradition which went beyond what God's law said about work on the Sabbath. They're not doing anything unlawful, but, but something even more important than that is that they're not working in the temple. They're working with the Son of God. They're in service to Him and His approaching kingdom. How much more important is their work? And on top of all of that, Jesus says, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. What he's not doing is saying, since I created the Sabbath, I have the right to contradict the laws and rules and just take and leave whatever it is I want because I created it in the first place. He's saying, I know Sabbath law. You don't. I created it. I know it. If anyone would know whether this was right or wrong, it would be me. I created the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And he's about to perform a miracle that would show that and validate that. He already has. And so this by no means condones and promotes situation ethics. Only a tortured interpretation of the text can yield a semblance of situation ethics. But error always fails logically. So what is that standard of ethics, if you will? What is right and wrong? Standard of morality, standard of living, our law that God and Christ has established. Well, Joseph Fletcher, I remind you, said that Christian situation ethics has only one norm or principle or law that is binding and unexceptionable, always good and right, regardless of the circumstances. He says that is love. You know what? I don't agree with his interpretation of love, but I do agree that the standard is love. What does the Bible say about love? Indeed, it is binding and unexceptionable. Everything we do must be done with love. And Jesus would agree with that as well because that lawyer in Matthew 22 said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. This is the first and great commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So love God, love your neighbor. Love is our standard of living. But what does he mean by that? Love is not some some fluid concept that takes the shape of the container it's in. So love is different for Jeremiah than love is for someone else. Love is objective. Love is defined. Love is a standard. He said on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Law and love, in other words, are inseparable. You separate love from law, you've got an individual who is not serving God with sincerity. You separate law from love, and you've got maybe someone who follows situation ethics. Law and love are inseparable. In John 14 and verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. He said, The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, he says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. And by this we know that we love the children of God when we... Love God and keep His commandments. You love God by keeping His commandments. You love the children of God and our neighbor by keeping God's commandments and loving Him. It all goes together. But Joseph Flesher says that the Christian chooses what he believes to be the demands of love in the present situation. If love is an unchangeable, eternal, objective standard, we can't choose what it is. We can just accept it 
or rejected. There's an interesting passage, a powerful passage, in Philippians 1 and verse 9, where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the faithful life of those in Philippi. He says, This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, and that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You notice that? Yes, we've got to discern with our love. We've we've got to be knowledgeable about our love, but it's not a relative concept that we get to decide. There are things that are excellent. You need to approve what those are. As Hebrews 4 or 5 says, we've got to be able in our maturity to discern between good and evil so that we can be sincere, that is single, without offense, and bearing fruits of righteousness, notice, which are by Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He determines what is that righteousness. What is that action of love which is required? Love is not dictated by the Christian. Certainly takes some discernment, but not some random decisions. Decisions that are made and discerned by an infallible standard. This, of course, takes knowledge of God's will. It's not arbitrary, but it is objective. And the Lord is going to judge us in the end. He's going to judge us not by whether we thought we were doing right. He's not going to judge us based on what the situation was. Well, you know, Lord... Just hear the context of why I did what I did. He's not going to judge us based on that. He's not going to say, well, you stole, but was it to feed your family? He's not going to say, well, you committed adultery, but were you in love with the person? The examples are endless. He's going to judge us based on what the Word says. John 12, 48, Jesus said, He rejects me and does not receive my words, has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. In Romans 2 and verse 16, Paul explained that there will be a day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. God will judge us by the divine, infallible, and eternal standard. And it may be too simple for some to accept that stealing is always wrong. Lying is always wrong. You know, some Christians have even fallen into the trap of thinking that that Hebrews 11, when it says that Rahab hid the spies by faith and James chapter 2 says she was justified when she hid the spies by faith. That that means her lying was justified. By no means is the Scripture saying that. She didn't have to lie. She didn't have to lie. And you may think, well, if she lied, or if she didn't lie, and she told the people where the spies were, then everything would have unraveled and and came undone. Well, I would direct you to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because God's able to do anything. He's able to overcome anything. They didn't have to lie. We never have to lie. We're never supposed to lie. And it doesn't matter what command or, or what thing that God has dealt with and labeled as sin, no matter what it is. If God says to do it, we must always do it. If He says not to do it, it's never okay to do it. Otherwise, there is no end to the consequences. And there is no way we can truthfully say something is right or something is wrong unless we appeal to God's standard and say that it's always that way. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to offer you an invitation. And it applies even to this lesson because it doesn't matter what the situation is. People bring up hypotheticals all the time. What if this happened? What if that happened? What if this precluded someone from being baptized and something happened to them, but they were going to the waters of baptism? It doesn't matter. Jesus said he who believes and is baptized will be saved. That's how we'll judge us. And so you need to do that if you haven't done that. And if there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you to come forward while we stand and sing.